Well, tonight we are meditating on John 13 and that night in the upper room when Jesus gave a little bit of an object lesson to them. And uh, you heard it read, and you probably are very familiar with the passage. Most people are very familiar with the virtue of servant love, if you've grown up in our circles, which uh, I'm sure you have. Uh, although I, I noticed that not everyone is. I one time was with someone, and I said, you know, you are such a servant. And she said, don't call me a servant. And uh, I realized that that language is not a universal language. Um, and she took great offense at that. So, um, but yeah, most of us are quite familiar with the image of people washing, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, the language of serving others, even servant leadership. And you know, it's really a passage that almost teaches itself. Um, I think all I did with it after studying it some more, and I've preached on it before, is I sat down with the passage and I said, Lord, what are you showing me? Which is what I do sometimes. I'll just open the scriptures and I'll um, just listen and read. And I was struck this time by a few things. I was struck by how early on in the passage, Luke tells, um, tells us that when he gathered them together this evening, he was loving them to the end, he said. That could be translated a little bit differently. I saw another translation. One translation said, he showed them one final proof of his love. In other words, it's something he'd been doing all the way along. It's something he'd been showing them all the way along. But then he had this, on this night, he had this little object lesson. He just made it very obvious. As if to tie up all the previous uh, examples he gave them, he gave a final proof of his love. And the word is telos, a final kind of wrapping up, a kind of a crossing the finish line. And of course, the cross will be the major uh, act of love. But the kind of this obvious picture that he gave them. And so John slows the narrative way down for us so that we really get it, right? He says Jesus stood up. See, the narrative is just getting really slow here. We see Jesus stand up. We see Jesus take off his robe. We see Jesus pick up a towel. We see him tie it around his waist. We're told he poured water into a basin. He washed the disciples' feet. He wiped them off with a towel. He has a conversation with Peter about this whole thing. He puts his robe back on, we're told. And we're told he sits down. And then he says, do you understand what I've done for you? That's the object lesson. He answers his own question. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. The word example um, can also be translated pattern. And again, the idea, he's been, he's been showing them this all the way along. But I've given you this pattern. Um, that would have been a word that would have been used in like moral philosophy, like a, a virtue, a kind of a pattern of one's character. But you can also just think of clothing, a fabric. You know, patterns on a shirt that repeat all over. Patterns on a carpet that repeat. Patterns on tile that repeat. Something that appears over and over again. So Jesus has been doing this over and over again, but he gives them this picture. And I thought to myself, you know, what are some of the things that characterize this pattern? What characterizes this servant love? And it struck me that one of them is that Jesus with his love was a boundary crosser. Part of the pattern in the fabric of Jesus' life was that he crossed boundaries all the time. Boundaries of position boundaries of, um, of social power, breaking cultural expectations. You could just see the pattern, right? If you scroll back the Gospels, the Samaritan woman, oh my gosh, he breaks three or four patterns there. He crosses into Samaria. Everybody, every Jew, every good Jew avoided Samaria. He, he goes to a, a well and he's crossing kind of, you know, appropriateness, decorum boundaries and talking to a woman. He certainly is um, crossing the boundaries of, um, of speaking with a Samaritan woman. We see him crossing boundaries and allowing unclean people to touch him and touching them in turn. And here in this object lesson tonight, he crosses the boundary of a rabbi 
of course, who functions as a slave. And you all know, I'm sure, that the washing of feet would be something that would usually be done at the door of a party or the door of an entrance, because, of course, dusty feet, sandals, Palestine. Someone would be there at the door, and it would, it would almost have to be a non-Jew, a non-Jew slave, because that was considered such, a, um, such menial work that no Jew would allow themselves to do it. So it wouldn't normally happen in the middle of a meal like this, but Jesus wanted to show them that um, these boundaries, these cultural boundaries, these positions of power, these social positions that you function in in daily life, well, they may have their uses, but when it comes to being a servant, they should not hold us back. And Jesus kind of moves through these as if he's kind of shedding these boundaries in his love. And so this is the crowning example of that pattern. Perhaps the only thing that would have not have shocked the disciples at this time was how Jesus teaches this. Of course, what he teaches and what he does is shocking to them. And we see that from Peter's own shock and Jesus's act and resistance to it. But Jesus would be teaching in a way rabbis often taught. And one particular pattern of rabbinic teaching started with a mystifying gesture that would provoke a question that would require an interpretation. That was a rabbinic pattern. Some strange thing the rabbi would do that would provoke a question that would now need an explanation. I remember when I was living in Greece for a while. I lived in a small fishing village. And in my, one of the first days I was there, I saw a fisherman pull up to the dock with his boat. And his family came out, and he was like this. You know, wife, eldest son, daughter. And they all went into the boat, and they grabbed octopuses, octopi, and they began slamming them on the ground. It was a concrete dock. Over and over, they picked them up and slammed them on the ground. Slammed them on the ground. To me, that was a mystifying gesture. (laughs) What strange cultural practice is this? It provoked a question, and it required an interpretation. Someone told me they were softening the octopus before cooking them. I thought, that's what that is. I understand. It was a mystifying gesture followed by a question requiring an interpretation. And this is what Jesus does here. He does something mystifying. He does something no rabbi would do, no Jew would do. And so, of course, he gets a question. Peter, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Which translates as, you're not going to wash my feet. This is crazy. What are you doing? This is crazy. And so he gives them the interpretation. No, no, this is what we do in the kingdom of God. This is what love looks like in the kingdom of God. Of course, Paul will tell us his interpretation as well, that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. It was not a program of upward mobility. It was not to be used to his own advantage. So we're pretty familiar, and even probably the world's familiar, even if they're not not in the kingdom of God. Most people would be familiar with Jesus as a servant or the washing of the feet. But I think it's still mystifying today when someone lays aside their advantage and their position and their power to love someone else. I think that's still strange. I think that's still a mystifying gesture. Like, why would you do that? I think it's still shocking. And I think it still provokes a question and requires an explanation, which is great. What it means is that the people of God, in loving this way, in unusually laying aside position, privilege, and power in certain circumstances, are going to be confusing to other people. And those people are going to ask, why are you doing that? And then we get to explain. A mystifying gesture, followed by a question, followed by an explanation. I remember, and I maybe have used this uh, example before, so forgive me, um, 
I remember Dallas Willard uh, said once that he was doing a lecture, which he taught at USC, so regular philosophy class, and his friend was visiting, so observing Dallas' lecture, and it came to the end of the class time, and um, a student at the last minute raised an objection and an argument opposing uh, Professor Willard's lecture. It was time for the end of class, but if you're, a, if you're a professor or a teacher out there, you know you can always have the last word. You can always make people stay a couple more minutes. He didn't. He dismissed everyone. And then his friend in the hallway said, uh, Dallas, that was not a hard objection. You could have easily have answered that. And he said, yeah, but I'm working on not always having to have the last word. That to me is a little giving up of power and privilege and position to love someone my friend Richard Davis, uh, who I was with last week, uh, Richard is now in his late 60s. He was a pastor for many years. He told me when he was a young pastor, and that would have been like, you know, in the early 70s, uh, his mentoring pastor, his uh, executive pastor, um, put down the phone and turned to Richard and said, hey, Billy Graham just called me, and he's uh, flying into the airport, and he wants me to come and meet him there. Do you want to come, Richard? Richard said, yeah, I want to come. And so Richard and his uh, executive pastor drive out to the airport. And, of course, it was the time when you could walk right up to the gate. You know, there was no security. You could, you know, rock right up there. I remember that. And his, I wish I could remember his, the pastor's name, but the pastor introduced Billy to Richard. And, um, and, you know, Richard is, you know, Billy is Billy. He's clean cut, looking good. Richard is 1970s, hair down to here, bell-bottom jeans, you know, young pastor, youth pastor, I think, at the time. And uh, Billy drew Richard aside and just gave him such, they just talked for about five or ten minutes at the gate there, and just he gave him such an encouraging exhortation to continue in the ministry and how much he was needed. Then they walked Billy to the car, and Billy, off Billy went, and the pastor and Billy didn't exchange much. And Richard remembers later on going, that was mystifying. Why did he ask me to go? And then it dawned on him, he wanted me to meet Billy. He wanted me to have some time with Billy Graham. Here I am, a 21 or 2-year-old pastor. These are small examples. Of course, Jesus' major example is giving one's life for another person. But for most of us, that's not always going to be the example. It's going to be in the daily stuff. You see, the pattern is not that complicated. It's quite simple. And in a nutshell, it's this. The practice of servant love is simply to seek the good of others. The question, therefore, is what is the good for this person? And what role can I play in bringing it about? What is the good for this person, and what role can I play in bringing it about? It's not easy, though, sometimes in execution. And I think Jesus shows us some, a couple difficult examples. It's not easy for us, and I would say it's not easy for me, to seek the good for a person who is my enemy. Because almost the very definition of an enemy is someone who does not seek your good. They do not seek your good. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to go around that room and to wash the feet of Matthew John, Judas. Judas. He washed the feet of Judas. A few minutes later, he would say, Judas, go and do what you have to do. Wow. It's hard because one has to sometimes give up securing their own existence to love the enemy, someone who does not seek your good. It can be hard. And it can be complicated, too, because there are some situations in which what is good for one person is not good for another person. Many of you are probably belong to institutions. I do. And institutions are have designed to protect practices. So if we think of the practice of medicine, an institution came alongside to protect and further that practice. What do we call those institutions that protect medicine? Hospitals. 
I teach at university in the practices of education. And there's institutions that have arisen to protect and further those practices, and we call them universities. And they usually work well together. But there are some times when the institution has to, for the sake of its own survival, compromise the practice. My friend who's a doctor with Kaiser in Denver loves to spend 20, 30 minutes with a patient. That's how he practices medicine. The hospital told him, you need to spend 10 minutes with each patient, given where we're at financially. He said, that's not how I practice medicine. And they said, it is now. So he was in a bit of a dilemma. He wanted to serve the good of the people, but he felt it might not be for the good of the institution, which serves people. And so sometimes it is complicated. Jesus, of course, came into Jerusalem, and he went on the temple grounds, and there were things taking place there that were not for the good of the people. There was money being exchanged in ways that were exploiting the people. And so he had to go in and literally upset the religious institution that was taking place there. Well, sometimes that happens. Sometimes serving the good of one person can upset others. But in the end, the principle is the same. It's non-negotiable. Servant love is seeking the good of others. And Jesus finally, at the end, says something that this time as I was reading it kind of stood out to me. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Huh, really? What does that mean? Because we normally think of servant love as sacrificial. But he says there is a blessing for people who love each other when it involves sacrifice or losing power or position. What would that be? Well, the word blessing, or even in Psalm 1 when it said, blessed is the person who... The idea of blessing is looking on someone's life and wishing you had that life. <laughs> it may even be a little bit of holy envy, but the blessed person is the person toward which other people look and they think, I wish I had that life. And in this case, it's not because of wealth. In this case, it's not even because of just goodness or virtue or image. And I thought to myself, well, for this person who loves in a, in a servant capacity, what is it that people look upon them and think, I wish I had that life. That is a blessed life. And you know, Jesus doesn't tell us, so I'm just going to tell you what I think. I think it's interior freedom. I think it's being free from having to secure yourself in the world. I think it's having, being free from having always to exert your status, having always to exert your position. I think it's free to love people across boundaries. I think it's being free. And why was Jesus free? Well, he tells us he came from the Father and was going to the Father. <laughs> that was all the position he needed. That was all the identity he needed to be the Father's. And so I think the servant in the end is blessed because they're free. They're free from themselves for the sake of others. So in this time that remains, in this brief pause we take after the sermon, I just want to invite you to think of that person in your life whom God might be inviting you to serve. It may not require much sacrifice, or it may. It may be an enemy. It may require some complicated discernment. But you know this is the person or the place right now to which you feel called to be a servant. Let the Holy Spirit bring that to mind.